You will notice if you take out the handout sheet that is in your bulletin that we are launching part one of a 23-part series in the book of Matthew. We're going to be going through it line by line, chapter by chapter, as we normally do. And that takes a long time. So we're going to be finishing out our year with this book. However, this book is what I've been waiting for. This is kind of the quintessential book of the year of world impact. This is the big one. This is the one I've been so excited about getting to, and I can't wait to launch it today. Um, I entitled today's message, Turning the World Upside Down, How Christ's Birth Moves Nations. And I wanted to begin with a quote from the Bible Knowledge Commentary, one of the commentaries that I study in my preparation. And if you would look at that with me, I'll just read it out loud. Speaking of Matthew's Gospel, it says this, It appears Matthew had at least two reasons for writing. First, he wanted to show unbelieving Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew had found the Messiah and he wanted others to come into that same relationship. Second, Matthew wrote to encourage Jewish believers. If indeed Jesus is the Messiah, a horrible thing had occurred. The Jews had crucified their Messiah and King. What would now become of them? Was God through with them? At this point, Matthew had a word of encouragement. For though their act of disobedience would bring judgment on that generation of Israelites, God was not through with his people. Now then, the reason I'm so excited about studying this book is because in the year of world impact, we're about to study God's impact plan on the world. That's what these Gospels are all about. So we're going to see what his plan was. If he wanted to reach the world, what would he do? We're going to have that recounted for us right in front of us in writing. So the fill in the blank in front of you is this. Our sovereign God moves the whole world for his plans. Our sovereign God moves the whole world for his plans. Do you believe that? I believe that not only in mass, in changing eternity, but I believe that for an individual as well. I believe that God goes to the nth degree to chase after the soul of those that he loves. I believe that is very, very true in Scripture. Now, anytime we open up a brand new book in Scripture, we have to get some background info or else we don't understand it. And truly, this background information may sound just like a bunch of facts, but it's really, really important in understanding what we're about to study for the next 23 weeks. So bear with me. I know a lot of you aren't really interested in this depth of Bible study. However, you came here. That's your fault. Okay, moving on. Uh, Who wrote the book of Matthew? Matthew. All right, that was easy. Okay. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Oh, busted you. Okay, great. You don't know. All right, here we go. The book of Matthew, of course, was written by Matthew. What do we know about him? Uh, Not much. We know that his name used to be Levi. Um, As a matter of fact, I kind of put him in the category of the disciples as disciple light. Okay, here's why. He was indeed one of the 12 disciples of Christ. However, there are some disciples you know tons about. Those were the big dogs, right? The inner three, Peter, James, and... John, those are easy. And of course, John wrote a gospel and you would expect that from the man who leaned against Jesus' chest on that fateful night of betrayal. 
the guy that was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You would expect that from him. But then there's a bunch of disciples that you're like, I'm sorry, who's Thaddeus? What's Nathaniel? Okay, nobody knows these guys. That was Matthew. He's kind of one of those other guys that kind of filled out the group. As a matter of fact, we wouldn't know anything about this guy if it wasn't for one specific fact. What he did for a living. You guys remember what he did for a living? Tax collector. Now, if you don't understand what a tax collector was, let me paint a modern day picture for you. Picture the IRS. Now, already people have some tensions about the IRS. How dare you extract money from me for the government? I get that. However, let's now picture that America has been taken over by China. The IRS now works for China and they are now a corrupt system. You have no code by which they should extract a certain amount of tax from you. So they're making it up as they go along. You have no idea if they're pocketing half the cash and not even giving it to their government. Now you know what a tax collector does. You see, the tax collectors were largely Jewish men that worked for the Roman government. The Romans ran the Jews. They didn't like that too much. So anyone that worked for the Roman government was a traitor. They were the bad guys. They were the despised ones. And that's indeed what Matthew or Levi did for a living. As a matter of fact, they were so lowly thought of that there began to be a common grouping or category of people that was used in Jesus' day called the tax collectors and sinners. In that group of sinners, you would put anybody that is overtly sinful and known to be in society. For example, the obvious uh, thugs in society, the robbers, the thieves, the prostitutes. Everybody was lumped into this sinners group and they were known as the tax collectors and sinners. That's Matthew's crew. When he had a party, that was his people. That's who came to hang out at his house. So the reason why I cite that and I make such a big deal about that is I believe it colors how he writes. I believe it colors his perspective. I believe it, it suggests things in his own mind about what he should include and what he should exclude. And we will see that in the early chapters of this book. When was it written? Well, we don't know. However, we do believe that it was written after the death of Jesus, before the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, therefore, we got a little bit of a window there. It was probably written in A.D. 50. Now, if Jesus died around A.D. 32, we got about a 20-year gap. Are we all clear on that? So 20 years after Jesus died, he began to write this down. Now, in order to write this down in an accurate fashion, when you've got a 20-year gap, I want you to think about how that works practically. Think of a very significant event that happened in your life 20 years ago. For many of you, that was birth. Okay, it was like, well, 20 years ago, I don't know, it was an embryo, actually. I don't remember a whole lot. That was pretty significant, though. I was dividing, you know. Okay, here's the point. The point is, is that even if it was 20 years ago, it was a massive event. You don't remember things exactly. You kind of know the gist of certain things, even if you are an eyewitness account. The reason I'm bringing this up is because we have an issue when we begin to talk about textual criticism or figuring out how the Bible was written in the way that it was. Now, this is where some of you must go to sleep and I'll wake you up when we get back to the message. Here's the deal. There are four Gospels, right? Three of them are extremely similar. Those are known as the Synoptic Gospels. 
Well, in studying this stuff, when you see how similar they are, it creates a problem, which is called the synoptic problem. Now, it doesn't sound like rocket science, but when you get into it, it gets pretty deep, okay? And I'm not going to be able to explain it all to you right here. But let me give you a few statistics about how close these three books really are. And it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Remember, John's the oddity. He's the odd guy, comes from a totally different perspective. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are so similar that they even have the same parenthetical statement, meaning an aside, where you're just making a side comment, identical in all three of theirs. In other words, it's not like they all just kind of hung out and go, I don't know, what are you writing about? I'm writing about Jesus. How are you writing about? I'm writing about Jesus. Okay, it's not like that. As a matter of fact, it's very similar. Here's some stats that should kind of blow your mind. 91% of the book of Mark is included in the book of Matthew. 91%. That's extreme, right? And only 24 verses of Mark, 7%, are unique to Mark alone. All the rest of it's either covered in Matthew or in Luke. So there's only a tiny little bit that's original to Mark. So there begins a big battle in scholarly circles. Who wrote first? Did Mark write first? That's what modern scholars say. Did Matthew write first? That's what tradition says. Who wrote first and who was borrowing from who and who slid over the document and said, all right, you guys, check this out. You write your own version. We don't quite know, but we know that multiple people were writing about Jesus. How do we know that? Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn with me to Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 1 is page 723 in the Bibles that were handed to you. 723, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Let's just read the first couple verses and I think you get my point. When Luke, who was writing... And he was writing underneath someone else. Because remember, Matthew was a disciple. John was a disciple. Mark and Luke wrote for Peter and Paul. Peter, of course, was a disciple of Jesus. All right. Now, however, when you look at Luke, who was not a specific disciple of Christ, he got information from an external source, examined it, locked it down. All right. Take a look at how he begins his book. And he was writing for a very wealthy man who's paying for it to be copied named Theophilus. It begins like this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. What is the first word in his gospel? Many. We go back to this problem and we say, well, why is it a problem? Well, merely because we're curious. We want to know if they all kind of hung out together, if they talked amongst each other, if one of them said, hey, I just finished this whole little booklet on Jesus. Do you guys have anything you want to add? How did this stuff go down? Well, if you talk about Mark being the 91%, all the stuff outside of Mark that Matthew and Luke talk about, 200 of those verses are almost identical between Matthew and Luke. So clearly, everybody's working off similar documents. So a million theories 
have been purported. A million theories are out there on the table to think about. There's only one bit of information I want to point out. And that is, as scholars are going through this, they agree that Matthew, Mark, and Luke must have been working off some documents, but there's something that Matthew includes that it seems that Paul may have commented off of and maybe Luke used that's not a document that we have today. That is called Q. Now, uh, if you ever look through these scholarly things, it always refers to it as Q. It actually stands for quell which is um, a German word for source. And what it is believed to be is a collection of just the writings of Jesus verbatim. We do not have that. The reason why that's important is if it does exist, what an incredible book. However, one of the earliest church historians was named Papias. Papias said, quote, Matthew wrote an account of Jesus's teachings in the in the Hebrew tongue end quote What I'm suggesting to you and I'm questioning today is is it possible that Matthew was the author of Q and That is where he is adding in to his gospel. He took what Mark had to say as well and he wrote an eyewitness account and then added in the teachings of Jesus because what makes Matthew so different as far as content, is that he teaches what Jesus taught. You want to know what Jesus did? Read Mark. You want to know what Jesus taught? Read Matthew. Matthew is dramatically different in many, many different ways, but there's a few that I have to highlight before we get started. The first and most major is that Matthew was a Jew, and he wrote to Jews. That's crucial. Because not all the gospel writers wrote for a Jewish audience. A lot of them wrote for much more of a Greek or a Gentile audience. Matthew, however, was very specifically Jewish in nature. What does that mean? It means four things that you need to know. Number one, it means that he wrote for the primary purpose of showing that Jesus is the Messiah and the rightful king in the order of David. That is the highest importance in Matthew's mind. So you're going to hear a lot of phrases like king. He'll keep talking about Jesus being the king, but nobody else seems to do that. Then he will begin to highlight words that are royalty. Why? Because he has one point in mind. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king. Every gospel writer wrote for a different reason. Now then, it also, number two, is Matthew was unusual in the fact that he quotes the Old Testament constantly and he assumes you know what happened in the Old Testament. He assumes you're a Jew. So as a Gentile, you're reading this stuff and you're going, I don't get it. I'm not following you, man. There's no explanation. He doesn't put in explanations like Mark does. He just merely says it as if you already know it. You need to know that. Number three is that he highly focuses on telling you that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. As a matter of fact, the phrase... And this was to fulfill what the prophet said. Happened 16 times in his gospel. He's constantly trying to remind you that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of everything. And then finally, even to this degree, there's a hypersensitivity to using the name of God properly in Matthew. And you go, what do you mean? Let me ask you this. Have any of you read any Orthodox Jewish writing of today? Look it up online. Try to find an Orthodox Jewish website. 
Watch how they write the word God. How's it written? G slash D. Why? You do not write out the name of God out of respect. They avoid any discussions of the name Yahweh. They will have a hard time even a lot of times with Jehovah. But the bottom line is they, out of respect, don't talk about the name of God. And if they do have to write it, they must write it in a different way. Now, what's fascinating about Matthew is all the other gospel writers talk about the kingdom of God. And Matthew says it once. That's it. Every other time he changes the term to the kingdom of heaven. So as to not sting or offend his audience. He wanted the non-believing Jews to continue to read the gospel and see Jesus without getting stuck on something as simple as that. That should be a notice to all of us on how we communicate Christianity to the outside world. You don't start throwing out terms they can't handle. You need to speak in a manner that they can understand, right? You need to share with people, your neighbors, by saying, you know what? I can't tell you everything about Jesus, but here's the basics that you're going to kind of get. Don't go off on all this stuff I just talked about. That's just rude. You want to go out there and give them the stuff that they need to know for right now. All right. Let me give you three final interesting things about the book of Matthew. Number one, he's the only gospel writer that mentions the church. He's the only one that makes any inference or talk about the church. It's kind of like the rest of them just ignore the whole fact. I thought that was interesting. Uh, number two, he's Mr. Apocalypto. Oh, yes, he's constantly talking about the end of the world. Everything's about the end of the world. You go to Matthew 24, it's like, and this is the signs of the end of the age, and the sky will turn red. And he's really dramatic about the end of the world. That's a big deal to him. And then finally, he focuses on themes, not on chronology. Why do you care about that? Because stuff's not in order. You need to know that. When you're reading, now none of the gospel writers are severe about order or chronology. However, Matthew's the worst. He pulls stuff way out of place and puts it in the order form so that the Jews could easily understand it and that in certain cases they could memorize it. He writes a lot for mnemonic value, which means memorization value. As a matter of fact, his whole book, the first 17 verses, are written to be memorized. If you haven't already, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, page 681 in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm just going to read the first verse, and we will pray for the word. It begins like this, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In Matthew's mind, that's all you need to know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you open up our spirits and our minds to embrace, understand, and include your truth into our lives that we might be different as we leave. That, Lord, this would not be merely an academic exercise, but it would be transforming truth to where you come alive right before our eyes. And we begin to see what you're doing, join you in that process, open up our hearts to you, and be enthralled with who you are. Would you please allow us to be your listening, your learning servants today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we begin. I want you to scan very briefly verses 1 through 17. Go ahead. Who's bored? All right, great. Okay, fantastic. That was easy. All right, let's, so it starts out like this. 
uh, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's the important thing. Now he explains it. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. So far, we're doing excellent. Everybody remembers those names. Then it gets weird. Verse three, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And everyone's going, yeah, I'm not following you. Okay, then it lists a whole bunch of other names and you get bored and you fall asleep. All right. You usually wake up around verse 16 and it says, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Real quick. Were there 14 generations? No. No, there were not. He cut out tons of names. Why? Because he was trying to organize it in three separate sections of 14 names so you could memorize the highlights. He only gave you the highlights because his whole point was to show you a direct lineage through the significant people to both David and Abraham. Why are those guys so important? Well, Abraham's the father of the Jewish nation and God told him a blessing, a covenant, Through you, all nations on earth will be blessed, meaning through you will come the Messiah. He is very specific with King David. Through your throne, through your lineage will be the Messiah. So if he is the Messiah, you need to trace back and tell me how. Now you would look at this stuff and you'd go, this genealogy stuff is totally boring. I don't even know why they include it. What a waste. I don't know how it applies to me today, right? Isn't that usually the argument? However... Genealogies to a Jew are extraordinarily important. And you go, why? Because it was all about your papers, your pedigree. Let me give you an example on why. In ancient Israel, you weren't allowed to own land, be considered a Jew, or even be a priest if you did not have your lineage written out in the books. You're cut off from Israel. So how important are your papers? Very important. Everyone, as a matter of fact, when they came back from the captivity, a lot of people got cut out because they couldn't prove their lineage. One of the reasons why the Jews hated King Herod ruling over them was because he was mixed blood. He was a half Jew, half Jew, half Edomite. So they said, you're not pure. And a bunch of them didn't like him for that reason. It was so extreme that when, he- when King Herod got into power, he burned all the registers so no one could prove that he wasn't. See, genealogy and lineage was crucial. Therefore, it's no surprise that three out of the four Gospels include genealogies. But whose is this? Because each one was writing for a different reason. What is Matthew's reason for writing? Jesus is the Messiah and the King on the rightful throne line. So whose line is he going to track? But Joseph. Now, Joseph is Jesus' stepdad. Do we all remember that? Yet, legally, he's under Joseph's roof. Therefore, legally, he gets to be part of the throne line. Now, Luke is writing about the humanity of Christ, about how Jesus is fully man. So he's not going to include the legal line. So he tells whose genealogy? Mary. We got Joseph in Matthew. We got Mary in Luke. Well, then you go, who else has a genealogy? John. You go, nah, ah, there's no genealogy in John. Well, let me ask you this. What's John's purpose in writing? To say that Jesus is 
God. So what's this genealogy look like? Have you read the beginning? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Clear. Are we all good? That was it. That's a genealogy. So he's God. We're moving on. That is a genealogy. All right? Then you go, but Mark doesn't have one. Yes, but why? Because Mark is writing that Jesus was the everyman, the servant of all mankind, the suffering servant of the Old Testament, a slave of mankind. And what do slaves not have? Genealogies. So it's absent on purpose. The point of studying genealogies is not that you like to read a bunch of weird names you can't pronounce. The purpose of reading genealogies is asking why they include the people that they include. And right here in this passage, we have some really unusual stuff. First of all, go through that list real carefully and you will find there are five women's names mentioned. Why is that weird? Because women aren't in genealogies. Women were property. They were not people. So they do not get to be in genealogies. They were not important. If an external pagan source was looking in, they'd say, why is there a woman included in this? This is ridiculous. Why do you even include them? They're not people. So women were never included in the ancient world, yet right here, five of them are listed. Why? Well, I think, and this is going to be my personal opinion, so take it with a grain of salt, I think they were put in by Matthew on purpose because of where he comes from. Now let's take Mary out of the equation. She's the last name and she kind of had to be mentioned. But why does he include the other four? Well, who are they? Let's start with the first one, Tamar. Anybody remember who Tamar was? Really creepy story. Everyone good on that one? Okay, this is the one where the girl dresses up like a prostitute so she can seduce her father-in-law and have kids through him. Ew. That's the first one. Second one is Rahab. What'd she do for a living? Prostitute. Third one, Ruth. Why, what is wrong with Ruth? She's not a Jew. She's a Moabitess. She's not supposed to be in there. And then the fourth one, Bathsheba. What's she famous for? Hey, that's right. She had an affair with the king while she was still married. Okay. The point is, is that not only does he include women in his genealogy, he includes four women that were shockers. Four women that were like, oh my gosh, what are you doing here? But who are his people? Do you understand? Where did he come from? He came from the despised crew. He came from the prostitutes and the thieves and the robbers. Those were his friends. I think it was his own personal influence that he said, God has always been about grace. God has always been about redemption. God has always used people that were sidelined by society. God has always engaged with the fringe. God is always interested in bringing someone back from the brink that you never thought would be saved. And here are four women that you wrote off as being useless to the kingdom of God, yet here they stand in the genealogy of the Messiah of God. Is that not amazing? So the only other thing I would like to point out before we move on is there's a guy in there and his name is Jeconiah. Um, Jehoachin is his other name. And if you ever read about this guy, there's a really weird story and I encourage you to do some study because it's far more dramatic than I can give to you today. But he had a curse on him. And his curse was very specific. None of your physical lineage will ever be in the line of the Messiah. I'm cutting you out, is what God said. Well, here he is in the genealogy of the Messiah. So how does that work? I'm sorry, whose lineage is it? Joseph. Is Joseph the physical father of Jesus? 
No. No, he's not. Bypassed. You understand? Not only that, but if you look at his story, it even has a bypass through his daughters. It's fascinating about how specific God was to still get his job done and still punish this guy. It's amazing. We move on into the rest of the story. Okay, everyone else can wake up. Fantastic. Here we go. Verse 18. Let's dive into this. This is what you would consider the Christmas story. However, we're going to look at it through a new lens. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, what? She was found to be with child. Does that happen a lot? Okay, now a lot of women claim that to be the case. However, that is not true. It has only occurred once. That's called the virgin birth. That is indeed where the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and a child was born. Now, this is extraordinary. I would suggest to you that what he just said is the single most extraordinary fact in all of Scripture. You bring in creation, I say amazing. You bring in the death of Jesus for our sins, I'm astounded. But you talk about this and I'm confounded. There's no way I can wrap my head around that. How in the world did the infinite enter into the finite? How in the world did that which is almighty enter into being one of us? A little dirt bag. How in the world did Jesus, who is the commander of the army of God, who says to angels, dispatch there, moves things, is the very word of creation. How does he set aside the perks of the Godhead and Slide right into humanity and become a baby. How does that happen? I do not know. I have no answers for you. That is the grand mystery of Scripture. We don't know how. We just know why. Because He loves us. That's why. He moves on almost as if, oh, you know that whole thing. And he goes on, verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, let me pause there. You could, if you found out your wife had sex with somebody else while you were in a betrothal period, you had three options. Bring her out and stone her to death. Take her before the magistrate and publicly humiliate her. Or do it quietly in writing with two or three witnesses. That's what he was going to do, the quiet version. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, let's stop there. Anybody confused by the language yet? It says, huh, her husband was a righteous man, yet Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But he had to divorce her, but yet the Holy Spirit told him to take her home as his wife. Are you married or not? Right? Well, i got to get into the Jewish history of it. The Jewish marriage process had three steps to it. The first was called an arranged engagement. Largely happened while you were kids. You were set up with somebody else, either in a nearby tribe or a village somewhere. But basically, it was an arranged marriage by your parents. If the parents weren't confident that they could make such a life decision, they would hire what? Yenta. 
You guys ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? Matchmaker. You get a matchmaker in there and she can do that. And then you are promised to one another. Only under extreme circumstances later in life could the girl opt out or the boy opt out of the process. Almost always it went forward and it went into phase two. Phase two is a year-long betrothal process. You were in the public's eyes married, but no benefits. You lived in your house. She lived in her house. You guys didn't even see each other or hang around or have any public discourse. The idea was you were completely separated. It was a final examination process. Why was it a year long? To see if she was faithful. And what happened during this year betrothal process to Mary? She was shown to be in society's eyes unfaithful. When you're in this betrothal period, you're married. The only way to break it is to go through a divorce proceeding. It's that serious. At the end of all that time, if everything is fine, you go into the marriage ceremony. And this is how it worked. If you, and by the way, I want you to listen for other scriptures this would highlight for you. For example, during the year process, the groom's job, the young man's job was to prepare a place for them to live. You build on to your father's house. Now, have you guys ever heard the, the phrase, I have gone to prepare a place for you? That's what Jesus said. He's gone off. Have you ever heard the phrase where we are his bride and he is the groom? That's what the whole point is. Then, once you're ready to go and it's the time to go pick up your bride, you lead out a large procession from your house all the way to her house. You get to her house and you knock on the door. Anybody ever heard the phrase, behold, I stand at the door and knock? You knock on her door. When it's opened up, you take your bride and you march with this massive procession of singers, dancers, friends, family, and you all go back to the house that you prepared in a great triumphal procession, and everybody waits outside for you to consummate the marriage to clap. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. That's super awkward. Okay. And everyone goes, yay, and then you're married. Okay. Now then, it was during this year-long process before the wedding ceremony that Joseph and Mary were involved in. We all good on that one? All right, moving on. Verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Super common name. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. Because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah in 714. The virgin will be with child, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Uh, side note, where was Jesus born? Well, we talk about being born in a manger. However, it is much more likely a limestone cave underneath a house, which is very common. And the reason why we believe that is Justin Martyr wrote in A.D. 150, Jesus was born in a limestone cave. Okay, great. There you go. That was easy. All right, moving on. Chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, by the way, Bethlehem is a small town, not a big town, small town five or six miles outside of Jerusalem. It's at 2,500 feet elevation. 
This is David's town. That's why it's so important. This is the town of David. Remember, David's the whole royal kingly line. Big focus on Bethlehem. So, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. If you want to know why they went to Bethlehem, you've got to read Luke. Right? Because Luke gives you that whole, and there was a census, and blah, 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 and they all got gathered together. Different guy's book. We're only focusing here. Well, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, stop, who's King Herod? He is a psycho. <laughs> King Herod in 47 BC was named the governor of the territory. In BC 40, he was named king. Now, King Herod had good and bad in him. The good thing was he was a really cool builder. He built a bunch of neat stuff, including the temple in Jerusalem. He has a lot of amazing things named after him that he built. The other good thing was he was one of the only rulers ever in that region to keep the peace as long as he did between the Jews and the Romans. Because remember, he's half Jew and he's half not. But they didn't like him a lot because he was still a patsy for the Romans. So no one knew quite what to do with him. And he had one major character flaw that's extraordinarily bad. It's called paranoia. Now, he was so insanely paranoid that someone would take his throne that he began murdering people at random. Now, not only did he eliminate large groups of people in doing this, but he killed his wife over it. He killed her mom over it. And he killed three of his sons over it. This guy will just kill anyone that dares challenge his title as king of the Jews. Remember, he's not a full-blooded Jew, so he's not allowed to be the rightful king of the Jews. So what is his greatest fear? That someone would try to take his throne. Let's read the next verse. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And if you want to know what the Magi are like, read the story of Daniel. The young Jewish boy that could dream dreams and interpret things and was a master in science and brilliant and able to uh, prophesy and do all this, you know, astronomy, knowledge and all this stuff. That's what these guys are. Okay. Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and they asked Herod his, the worst question possible. Hey, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? Are you kidding me? We saw a star in the east and we've come to worship him. Bad news. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Yeah, I would imagine. And all Jerusalem with him because they don't know what he's going to do. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, that's the theologians and the aristocracy. Um, remember how there can only be one high priest over Israel at any given time? Well, the Romans could actually knock him off and say, you can't be high priest anymore. And they would do that periodically. So all the alumni hung out together. That's the chief priests. And he asked them where the Christ, where the Messiah was to be born. I said, oh, that's obvious. In Bethlehem in Judah, they replied. For this is, where the Christ, uh, for this is what the prophet has written in Micah. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. So they quote the Old Testament to him. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so I too may go and worship him. Okay, completely bogus. He's looking to kill the kid. 
After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now, real quick side note, that word child is different than the word baby. Baby's one word, child's different word. Why is that important? Because this whole nativity scene where the shepherds are hanging out with the magi is totally bogus. There's a year and a half at least distance between those guys. So no, they didn't all arrive at the same time. Not only that, but it mentions that they're in a house. Remember, when they came as a census, there was no room for them. However, when everyone goes home, there's plenty of room to rent. And so now they've been living there for at least a year, maybe more. It's likely that by this time, Jesus is around the two-year-old kind of toddler range by the time the Magi show up. When they saw the star, verse 10, they were overjoyed. Quick question. What was the star? Don't know. Moving on. Verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Let me ask you a question. How convinced do you need to be about a star to worship a toddler? When back home, you're the big dog, you're the brightest, you're the smartest, you're the wealthiest, and everybody thinks you're astounding. What do you have to believe to travel a big old long distance and bow down before a kid going, peekaboo, right? We always have this picture of Jesus going, hello, gentlemen, <laughs> so good of you to come. I'm British, even though I live in Israel. Okay. Anyway, that's, that's all bogus. But then they opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. How many wise men were there? Don't know. Doesn't say there's nothing in scripture at all. It's only tradition that says three. Why? Because men can only carry one gift. Right? That's why. It's kind of like, that's stupid. Could have been two guys. He's like, look at me. I got two gifts. Okay. Or it could have been a whole crew. It could have been a whole bunch of them. One tradition has it being 12. We know that they largely traveled in caravans uh, for not being attacked kind of reasons. But we now have three gifts. These three gifts are very significant. Um, now, whether or not they truly mean this or not, I think it's astounding what they could mean. First of all, what is king? What is uh, a gold fit for? It's fit for a king. That's the, that's the king metal. Super expensive, super valuable. Fit for a king. So we got the king concept. What's the second gift? But incense. Who uses incense? Priests. Now we have a king and a priest. And you go, well, the third one should be for a prophet. No, because prophet, priest, and king is the trifold office of Jesus. No. The third one is myrrh. What is myrrh used for? Burial. What a weird gift. Hey, I heard you got a kid. Here's some embalming fluid. That's fantastic. <laughs> They're like, what? what is wrong with you? Okay, now it smelled nice. <laughs> okay, so maybe that was the kind of gig. Next time you see myrrh show up in the story, what happens? They're anointing Jesus' body with it and wrapping him up and putting myrrh and aloes all over his body as he is dead. So what do we have now? In three gifts, we have the full gospel presented. Here is the coming king who as priest will bridge God to man and will die for your sins. Is that not amazing? Incredible stuff. Verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, like they needed that, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. 
which sounds really random. It's kind of like, uh, go to Sacramento. I mean, it was just kind of some weird, uh, you go, why Egypt? Actually, it's really natural. Here's why. For centuries, the Jewish people were always getting beat up. Now, they had uh, other people that would constantly war on them. Or if a famine hit and things got really bad, their natural course of action was always to go back down to Egypt. Why? Because Egypt was much more lush and it had uh, much more sustainability for people. Because of the centuries of traveling back and forth, actually in Egypt there were huge ghettos or huge burrows of Jewish people. So it was very common that if you had a hardship, you'd travel down and hang out with the rest of your friends or the rest of the people like you. So this is not unusual at all. It was the natural flight plan of any distressed Jewish family. So sure enough, when the angel brings it up, it seemed absolutely logical. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod, which history tells us was 4 B.C. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet in Hosea 11.1, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Do you understand that as... In a small town like that and the vicinity, it's likely about 20 to 30 boys in that age group. But 30 innocent children were slaughtered by a tyrannical, paranoid freak because he couldn't handle someone challenging his throne. How many died when Jesus was born? A lot. It says this, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled in Jeremiah 31:15. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel, the famous woman of the Old Testament, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel was buried in Bethlehem. And so the original text is speaking of when Israel was taken into the Babylonian captivity and they were marched out of their land. Rachel was said to symbolically have come back from the dead, standing in Bethlehem, watching the people march by and weeping for the Israelites. In the same way, when these young boys were killed, she once again symbolically rose from her grave and wept for the death of her own people. That's what it means. Verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. Now then, when Herod died, he knew very well that none of his sons would ever be given the title king of such a large region. So he broke it up into three chunks. He broke it up into the Judea region, who he gave to his son Archelaus. He broke up the Galilee region... And gave that to his other son, Herod uh, Antipas. Then the period or the area beyond the Jordan, he gave to his son, Philip. Now that's very significant because they're about to go back into the Judean region. All right? Take a look at what happens next. 
Verse 21, so he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, the son that was ruling over the Judean region, was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Now, why was he afraid to go there if the bad guy was gone? Because his son was just as bad. The way his son opened up his tenure as leader was to slaughter 3,000 people from the get-go. He was a horrible, horrible man. As a matter of fact, the Roman Empire had no faith in him, so they never gave him the title king. They gave him the title ethnarch and said, you will earn the title king around here. However, after 10 years of tyranny, he was booted out, never having earned the title king. As a matter of fact, he was exiled to Vienna. Kind of an odd side note. It says this, Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the other son's area, the district of Galilee. Who runs Galilee? Herod Antipas. When John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod, it was who? But Herod Antipas. When Jesus had to stand before Herod, it was who? Herod Antipas. Jesus is going to grow up in this region of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town in that region called Nazareth. Nazareth was a decent-sized city. However, it was the city of sellouts. Why? Because it was strategically located by being near a number of very significant world trade routes. For that reason, the Roman Empire stationed a huge garrison there, meaning a Roman uh, army. So all of Nazareth, all the Jews had to take care of a bunch of Roman soldiers. So all the rest of the Jews backed out of the city and said, I don't want to live there. You guys are helping the enemy. We don't like you. It became a despised location. And if you wanted to insult other people, you would call them a Nazarene. As a matter of fact, when Philip, one of the disciples, was told that the Messiah had been found, he said, where is he from? They said, he's from Nazareth. And he just about lost it. Nazareth? Nothing good comes from Nazareth. That's exactly where our Messiah grew up, in that side city. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Real quick test, where is that quoted from? Nowhere. It's not in the Bible. Okay, here we go. You go, what do you, what do you mean it's not in the Bible? He just said it's quoted through the prophets. Nope, not in there. So what's our best understanding? Well, the most common understanding is that it's a loose translation of Isaiah 11.1. In Isaiah 11.1, there's a famous passage where it says the Messiah will come from the root or from the branch of Jesse, meaning David's lineage. Well, that word root or branch is Netzer. The name of the city is Nazar. So his whole point was to play off the words of going, we always knew that he would be Nazar. We always knew he would be despised. That's the most common understanding. However, in order for you not to freak out that this is a misquotation, who does he say that quotation came from? What does it say in your Bible? It says it came from the prophets, plural or singular? Plural. It was never meant to be a direct quotation from one man. It was basically Matthew's way of saying, hey guys, if you're good Jews, go back and read your Old Testament. The Messiah was always going to be despised. We know that from all the prophets. 
Are we all clear? And he finishes up chapter 2. Here's all I need you to know as you leave today. When the Father was to send the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit into this world, when the second person of the Trinity entered into our reality, He began to change everything. He used angels and dreams and visions and altered the supernatural to have it be so. He did not just use one nation, but many. He not only used Israel's region, but he used Egypt as well. He also moved and raised up monarchs and deposed kings. He even allowed all different kinds of people to come in from the east, from far away. He began to alter the signs in the sky to hearken the arrival of the coming king. Is He even disrupted two little personal lives of two people, Joseph and Mary, and he did the extraordinary. Does our sovereign God maneuver everything to get his purposes done? Yes, he does. If that is so, then he will do it for the soul of one. And I want to suggest to you that next time you pray, you remember that. That when you pray, you are calling upon the Almighty, and the Almighty has every access and probability to maneuver anything and everything to get that accomplished on your behalf. If you ask in Jesus' name, then if it is to be so, it will be so. And that includes the people in your family, the friends, the co-workers that do not know Jesus right now. And you can't imagine any way that they will ever come into a relationship with your Savior. You remember the impossible is merely a line item for God. He will get it done if that is in His heart and in His plan. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for today. Thank You, Lord, for the extraordinary designed out right in front of us. May we be the type of people who believe in the impossible that we would not be those that try to explain away everything, but to understand that there are things beyond our comprehension. Would we be the type of people that would glorify you in our thoughts, in our minds, in our dreams, in our imaginations? And Lord, that we would be people that are pleasing in your sight. I pray right now, Father, that we would allow our hearts to be soft and moldable to you, and that when you want to get something accomplished in this day and age, that we would say, here I am, send me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.